0: If you've been with us, you know that we're in a series uh, going through the book of Galatians entitled Unlocking Freedom. If you haven't, now you do. And uh, today we're going to be at the very end of Galatians chapter 3. I want to take just a moment to read that passage. Galatians 3 verses 23 through 29. Uh, You can use your Bible app, a Bible that you've got there with you. If you need a Bible, we've got some on the tables in the back and we'll have it on the screen. Says now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Thank God for that. I want to start this morning by telling a story, as I often do. I uh, I played basketball in high school, um, and uh, we had a Uh, a a period of a practice one day we had uh, been doing a a very poor job of shooting free throws as a team Um, and you know Paul says about his sin of whom I am the worst Um, free throw shootings of whom I am the worst I was not a good free throw shooter all right Uh, I was a football player by heart and so my free throw shooting percentage was terrible and so the the drill went as such we uh, we had to shoot three free throws if we made two out of three then we were good and we went around in a rotation and um, you know, like you, you got to rest. But if you made one or, or zero, you had to run until it was your turn again. And this was to go on for 10 minutes. And so, um, needless to say, I wasn't hitting two or three out of three very many times. And so I was doing a lot of running. And um, what was funny is that Coach knew I was a bad free throw shooter. He tried to help me several times before, and he, you know he tried to change things about it. And I was like, Coach, I'm just, I'm, I'm I'll get it. I'm going to do it my way, right? I'm going to do it my way. And so um, finally, uh, about the fourth or fifth time around, I've been basically running nonstop for six or seven minutes, and uh, I, I step up to the line, I shoot my first free throw, and I make it. I'm like, yes. I've only got to make one out of two. That's all I got to do one out of two and I don't have to run this time So I step up to the second one Go through my routine. I shoot it and I miss <sighs> All right I'm Like I'm out of breath. I'm tired. I've been running for six or seven minutes I just got to make this free throw if I just make this free throw So I step up for the third one and I miss I'm done. I'm mad And you know how gyms have, um, they have like that padded wall behind the goal for like when people are supposed to run into it, like you don't get hurt. Well, I chose to use that padded uh, wall for something else in that moment. And so I missed my third free throw and I walk over to the wall, boom, and I just punch the wall as hard as I can and um, crack my hand. And um, that was awesome. And then coach is like, lawyer, what are you doing? And I was like, I miss my free throws. And he's like, you're supposed to be running. And I'm like, oh man, this is like no mercy, no grace. And so I take off and I, and I end up running. And you know, I tell that story because I think that there's some, there's some pride in all of it. There was pride in me that day. I do this with more than basketball, right? Uh, I don't want people to help me do anything. Uh, another example, like Christmas is getting ready to come up and my wife loves to be given gifts. Uh, but there's like this sense of pride in me that, not only am I going to get the gift, I'm going to wrap it, but I'm a terrible Christmas gift. Like, I, I can't wrap presents, and so I'll go, and I'll buy a present, and they're like, do you want us to wrap that? It's free of charge. I'm like, no, I got this, <laughs> and I know in the back of my mind that, like, she would be super impressed if I had, it like, really wrapped, and I'm going to do some terrible job wrapping it, right, but there's a sense of pride in me, um, but, and and, you know, I do it with things in my life, too, that are maybe more serious than that, and. Uh, we think about like raising my kids, and somebody says, "Hey, have you ever thought about?" It? And you're like, "No, I got this. I know how to raise my own kids, right?" Uh, or maybe it comes to matters of faith, and and I, these are things that I do, right? It's like, uh, "Hey, do you, do you have you ever thought about reading your Bible this way?" Have you ever, you know? I'm like, "I'm a, I'm a pastor. I've got this. I know how to do this. Uh, praying, right? Like all these these simple things of our faith, and and this little thing called pride just like creeps in." and and causes me to think, I've got this, I can do this. Uh, I don't want anybody to to help me do that. I would rather die sometimes than ask for help, right, in some areas of my life. And I I hope I'm not alone in that. Maybe I'm the only one, but I hope I'm not alone. and And I think what happens is when we realize that something in our lives is broken, when we realize that there's something that's not right, a lot of times we'll try harder instead of die harder. Well, try harder instead of die harder. Paul is writing here in, in the book of Galatians. We've been talking about the context for a long time, right? Um, the, that there was this group of people who had come in after the Galatians had accepted Christ, after they had become, you know, believers in him. And they said, no, 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 no. Not only do you have to believe, you have to follow all the old Jewish rules and customs. you got to follow the law. And and so now Paul is unpacking, what does it look like to really live in freedom? And he comes to this to this point where he's trying to, to, to understand this balance between law and the rules and what's right and wrong and faith in Jesus. And so he starts in this passage that we've read this morning, and he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. You know, these things where we try harder instead of die harder, those are pictures of what it looks like to be captives to the law. We, we, before we knew to believe in something bigger, we believed in the rules that we were given. When we're unable to keep those ru- rules, we tried harder to keep them rather than just own up to the fact that we can't do it and confess that we can't do it. You know, I'll go to great lengths to cover up my mistakes so that no one really knows, right? Again, maybe I'm maybe I'm the only one, but I don't think so. Like, if I'm going to invite you over to my house, I I am not above taking everything in my house that doesn't have a place and putting it in one room, closing the door so that you think that my house is put together right. Like, I want everything to look right. Uh, I will be in yelling matches with my kids in the car, walk in the door, and tell you 30 seconds later when you ask me how are you, You're like oh, I'm great. I am great. Good. We are ready to go. I will put a smile on my face when deep down I want to knock the teeth out of your smile, right? You say something to me and I'm like, I love you. That's great. We're human, right? We are human. It is what we do. And these are all pictures of of what Paul says here in verse 23 of, of being held captive under the law. The law teaches us what's right and wrong, and, and that, that sense of morality exists in many of us because of the generations of, of that have existed between the giving of the law and now. And what we struggle to realize is that we often can't find the right answer until we're willing to be wrong. We can't find the right answer until we're willing to be wrong. In other words, we can't fix the problem until we admit that something is broken. You know, we'll... We'll think about our lives, and maybe you're doing it right now, and and you think about you know all the things that are broken. You'll look at your overscheduled calendars, your unbalanced budgets, and your initial instinct is to try harder, to try to fix it without humbling yourself and recognizing the role that you played in breaking those things in the first place. We'll see the brokenness inside of our lives. Maybe it's addiction or unhealthy habits. Maybe it's jealousy of the people around you, and and you feel responsible to try and fix it by trying harder to do the right thing. You see, brokenness in our relationships, right? It's all over our world, and and that brokenness is caused by lying, by racial tensions, by gossiping, betrayal, political positions, right, in this season, and more. And in those moments, we try to fix the situation by getting people to see it our way. We try harder instead of die harder. We've all got some kind of brokenness that we're trying to fix. That's what's great about Christ's community, right? We all come as broken people with a story. So if we aren't able to fix the brokenness, even in our own lives, who is? How does he do it? And why, why do we even have this moral law of right and wrong? What is its purpose? And the answer to all of those things is this. Jesus binds together what the law breaks apart. Jesus binds together what the law breaks apart, and we're going to dig into that and break that down just a little bit. So, So first, why do we have right and wrong? Why did God give the Ten Commandments to Moses and institute this moral law that teaches us right and wrong? Verse 24 says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, the law didn't let us out of our punishment for sin. It doesn't get us out of going to an eternal prison called hell. Doing the right thing does not do that. So why have it? We read here that it serves as a guardian. It keeps watching us, constantly reminding us of our need for God's mercy. It doesn't let us out of the guilt. It doesn't let us out of the shame, right, uh, that we feel. Because if we did, we would have no need for Jesus, the one who is able to fix our brokenness. But in our brokenness, we begin to believe that that. It can do all those things. The law can free us from our sin. It can make us feel better about ourselves for being good people. But the reality is, right, if you were to sit down on a daily basis with the Ten Commandments, just the Ten Commandments, you're probably going to leave every day feeling guilty, full of shame, and broken. If you just sit down with those Ten Laws, they're not going to leave you feeling too good about yourself. So who fixes that brokenness and, and who justifies us? The answer, of course, is Jesus. You know, the people who lived before Jesus, they knew they were broken. Can you imagine being them? You're given this law and you don't even know who Jesus is. And so day in, day out, you're faced with the, this law, this, this t- these Ten Commandments that are just showing you what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. And so even before they knew his name, they were longing for Jesus to come. The prophets wrote about uh, the coming Messiah, uh, is what they called him, God's word about the promised one. They wrote about their yearning, their longing for someone who would fix their brokenness. Uh, We see it all over the, the prophets. We read in Ezekiel 34, verse 16, it says, Uh, God says, I will seek the lost, I will bring back the straight, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. And talking about what Jesus would do. Uh, Hosea 6.1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. You know, the way that Jesus fixes our brokenness is to bind us up in Christ. The law shows us we're broken because the reality is that Jesus won't fix what we don't recognize as broken. You know, if I think I'm good, if I look at my life and I think, ah, I'm pretty good, I'm in a good place right now, I have no need for Jesus. If you've been walking with Jesus for several years and and you think you've gotten to a place where you're okay, you're good, you kind of got this thing figured out, then you, you have no need for a Savior. You have no need for someone to defend your cause. The fastest way to move closer to Jesus is to let Jesus show you your sin. Nobody wants to face the wrong, but that's the fastest way to get close to Jesus because that's where he meets us. So then the law was our guardian. It guards us until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. You know, that word justified is an interesting word. The word literally means to defend the cause of. So you have this picture of of being in a cell, of being trapped by the sins in your life. And the law is guarding you. It's standing at the door, reminding you, nope, you can't get out of here because you've failed to do this. And Jesus comes in, and he defends your cause. He stands in between the two of you. He defends us from the law so that we might escape our brokenness. And more importantly, he he defends us from the wrath of God. And if we don't recognize that we need someone to defend us, to justify us, to to make us right, then this process of, of reconciliation, of fixing the problem, can't begin. But what does that process look like in our lives, right? There's here's all the why like what does that really look like if we flesh that out in our daily lives? How does Jesus fix our brokenness? These prophets who wrote of Jesus talked about how Jesus binds up our brokenness. Well, Jesus doesn't just bind us up, he also binds us together. That's how he fixes us. He binds us, the church, together. Colossians 3:14 says, "And above all these, Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, while Jesus is, is justifying us in the presence of God and our enemies, we have something to do. We have something to do. We must be putting on love. We have to figure out what it looks like for our lives to be, to be known and defined by love. And here's what's crazy. This means that the church should be the safest place in the world To fix whatever is broken in your life. It doesn't matter how messy, it doesn't matter how wrong, doesn't matter how ashamed or how guilty you are, the church should be the safest place to fix that. You should be able to talk and process through anything with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It should be the safest place to invite a friend. then and and when they come, they, they are not gonna feel judged, that they'll feel included no matter their story or their appearance or their choices. Our community groups, they should be places where people feel comfortable exploring their faith, asking the hard questions, seeking God's answers together. The church should be the safest place to process what you think or what you believe on all these hot-button issues in a healthy and and non-hostile way. Homosexuality, divorce, racial tension, politics. We should be able to talk about these things, not because we all agree on them, but because we can all have grace for each other in them as Christ binds up the brokenness that exists in our own lives. And if we can't, if we can't do that, if we can't sit in each other's living rooms and have healthy conversations about those types of things, perhaps even leaving conversations, not agreeing with what the other person said, but loving them, we have to ask ourselves, are we more concerned with being right than with being rescued by Jesus? Are we more concerned with being right or being rescued by Jesus. Here's part of the problem, right? The church hasn't held up their end of the deal in this arena. The church is full of a lot of broken people too, right? The church, both universally and at times here in our local context, hasn't promoted a culture of love, of grace, of, cl- of inclusion. Instead of treating each other like brothers and sisters in Christ, we've treated each other like competing cousins, trying to get God's attention for ourselves. We drown out our love for each other with hostile conversations about which side of the aisle we sit on or the right way to correct social injustices and how to respond to people who don't hold the same preferences that we do. We become divided on those things as opposed to unified in Christ. So what does it look like for the church to be that safe place? And how do we join Jesus in making it one as he talks about here in this passage? As a baseline, we have to do it together, right? Right. If you're engaging with people from from the faith family once, twice a month on a superficial level, sneaking in, sneaking out, as as Phil talked about, expecting to have relationships where you can have those real and raw and honest conversations, it's not going to happen. That's not an indictment, it's just an observation. We all have to be committed to loving and serving one another in a consistent way. But to get there, we have to, to first change what we think and what we believe. We have to first believe in our hearts and our minds the promises that we see God make in this passage. Because you see, promises from God are always kept. He's not like us faltering humans. He keeps his promises. And so there's two promises in particular that God makes in this passage that foster a healthy and unified culture in the church, a culture that makes it safe to fix what is broken in your life. Promise number one is this. God promises, God promises to change you from a captive to a child from a captive to a child. Paul writes, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're not a captive. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. I asked Katie Gaither uh, about the jail ministry that she and some of the ladies from CCC have been doing recently. Uh, I said, hey, tell tell me some stories. Tell me what God is doing there. And she, she blew me away with what God was doing. Um, so I wanted to just t- share two stories that stuck out to me that she shared uh, in an email that uh, really captured this idea of God changing us from a captive to a child. She wrote, One of my girls has gone through a complete physical and spiritual transformation. She truly looks, sounds, carries herself like the new creation in Christ that she is. She's only 23. She has two kids. And last week she shared with me that during her personal Bible study, she has been preparing Bible studies to teach her kids when she gets out. From a captive to a child for her children. Within the walls of jail. She writes another story. It says, one of my girls has been sharing her relationship with Jesus with her mom. After lots of, of time and conversations, her mom is now a believer. Just by seeing how changed her daughter is. Her mom started taking her grandkids to church every Sunday, and now when she gets out of jail, all of them will already have a new church family to go home to, from a captive to a child, across three generations. Praise God for that. Now, when you put your faith in Jesus, not just believing that he's real, but trusting him with your entire life, God promises to change you, just as these women have been changed, from captives to children of God. Faith in Jesus transforms you from a captive in this dark, gloomy, gloomy, hopeless cell in life to a child of God who's, who's hanging out in love and security and safety of a family that loves you. So the question is, how do I get into that family, right? How do I become a part of that family? Paul writes, for as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. You know, when you make the decision to be baptized... You are making a choice to die to your old self. You die to yourself because of your faith in Jesus. The old is gone. The new life in Christ is here. The law, which was guarding you from, from coming out of that prison cell, is fulfilled by Christ. You're no longer seen as a criminal, but rather as, as Christ who, himself who never sinned. You're not a captive, but a child. You're no longer seen by God as the person who has done wrongs, but, but rather as one of his children that brings him joy and brings a smile to his face. We are born again into the family. Of God. Jesus makes it really simple at the end of Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. It says, And Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So there's an important question that we have to ask ourselves Are you born again? Have you been baptized? This isn't something to to mess around with because baptism makes you uncomfortable, as Wes would say. This is how you find your identity in Christ. You're not going to be able to try hard enough to find your identity in Christ. Rather, it's dying to yourself in the waters of baptism. And if you've not been baptized in Christ after believing in him, I cannot urge you strongly enough to make that decision. Quit living life for you and being a captive to yourself and become a child of God. And it all starts by realizing that you can't fix your problems by yourself. And no other human being can either. And that leads to promise number two, right? Promise number one is that God will change you from a captive to a child. And promise number two is that God promises to include you and not exclude you. It's awesome. Kids yelling. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When we are baptized into Christ, it doesn't mean that we cease to have distinctions When we're baptized, it doesn't mean that we quit being black or white or Hispanic. It doesn't mean that we quit being a Democrat or Republican or Libertarian. It doesn't mean that we quit being single or married or divorced. It doesn't mean that we quit being a man or a woman, old, young, rich, poor, anything else. Those distinctions do not go away. It simply means that those distinctions are no longer grounds for exclusion. We are all included in the family of God, faults and all. And we have to figure out what that looks like to act like it. Todd Claypool, who leads a community group on Sunday nights, reminded me this week of an idea uh, that came from Henry Nowen. Henry Nowen notes that two disciplines make this kind of community, this kind of culture possible, forgiveness and celebration. He writes, forgiveness is to allow the other person not to be God. Forgiveness says, I know you love me, but you don't have to love me unconditionally because no human being can do that. To forgive other people for being able to give us only a little love, that's a hard discipline. If we can forgive that that another person cannot give us what only God can give, then we can celebrate that person's gift. Then we can see the love that person is giving us as a reflection of God's great unconditional love. To include others is a constant cycle of forgiving and celebrating. Forgiving others and celebrating who God has made them to be. And each time we struggle to do one of those things, we become exclusive. We exclude others from the family. We cut out others for the sake of ourself. That battle's been waging since Adam and Eve. But when we are willing to fight in that battle with God to include all, we, we begin to feel alive. And this is the promise that God makes to us to bless us. We feel blessed because we're tasting the fruit of the promise that God made to Abraham and to us long ago, a promise to bless those who had faith in God and make us into one family. Here's a reality, right? Here's where the rubber meets the road. The diversity of our country and of our community, racially, economically, culturally, politically, the diversity of, of our country is changing rapidly. And what that means is that our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, they will all live lives that are much more integrated than the ones that we experience now. their existence will be completely different than ours. And it is imperative, it is imperative that we teach them through our attitudes about those distinctions and our actions, the truth of the gospel, that Jesus died because his desire was for all, for all, with no exclusions, for all to be saved through faith in him. A couple weeks ago, uh, some of our, our team members went down to the Catalyst Conference. And there's always a lineup of speakers there, and there's always one speaker that surprises you, that you weren't expecting to really um, inspire you. And so the one that was on the list this year that I was like, well that's interesting, was a guy by the name of Father Edwin. Father Edwin is a monk in Newark, New Jersey. And um, they, he comes onto the catalyst stage, right? Like, you got all these hipsters leading worship, and, like, I, I feel old, and I'm not even old because they're so hipster. And he walks out onto the stage in his, you know, his monk garb, and he, like, flips up his little thing and, like, sits down. And I'm like, what in the world is this? And he went on to tell the story of a school that he is leading. He's the headmaster of in Newark, New Jersey. Several years ago, the school closed their doors not because they couldn't support it financially not because that you know not because of any reason other than this the racial makeup around the school had changed and the people who lived around the school were no longer like the monks so they closed the school and father edwin tells a story of the night that they decided to close the school one of the fathers came up to him and he said father edwin why is it, why is it that my my son cannot have this kind of an education? And Father Edwin made the decision to open the school the next day. And from there, it's become one of the most transformative places uh, in Newark. And I want to show you a quick video of
1: that place. 60 Minutes, Moment of the Week. Before Newark had a skyline, St. Benedict's red brick campus rose on a hill. Over decades, its walls have grown, but it's no citadel against the world. Inside is the inner city. Half the boys are black, another third Hispanic, and nearly all come from low income neighborhoods. They call each other Brother, and every morning all 550 grades 7 through 12 celebrate a revival. Turn to somebody to your right and left, remind them I love you! Their day begins with a chant they call the affirmation. You can be You can be any good thing you want to be. Go and conquer. You go and And if you don't see discipline, just watch. Senior group leader Bruce Davis has order in the palm of his hand. Hands down. Group leaders stand for attendance. This is a large part of what makes St. Benedict's rare and successful. Students are required to run much of the school. Davis is their elected leader. Benedict's
0: men are different than the guys that you see outside, you know, every single day.
1: We learn what we're willing to accept, which is nothing but the best, nothing but finishing what we started. Students are organized into groups that compete for the top grades, so the boys press each other to study. The student groups coordinate events and set the schedules. That's the school motto. Whatever hurts my brother hurts me. Whatever
0: hurts my brother hurts me. Picture of healthy community. You yeah, I think the gist of this passage, the big idea, the good news of the gospel is that God has already fixed the brokenness in our lives. He's already made a way. But that's not the reality that the Galatians were living in. They were saying, they were telling Paul, Paul, there's no way that we will be seen as equals. We're not Jewish. There's no way. This community in Newark was was telling Father Edwin, there's no way that this school work with a bunch of black and Hispanic street boys and monks. There's no way. And Satan is probably telling many of us, there's no way that you can be free. There's no way that you can be free of that long-time addiction that you've had. There's no way you can be free or included because of your past story. There's no way that you can be a part of this church because you don't fit the bill. You're too old, you're too young, you're too fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is that that you're hearing. There's no way. And God says to the Galatians in Galatians 3, He says to the community of Newark, New Jersey, and, and He says to us, oh, there's a way. There's a way. And I've already paved it. For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is a way. The way is Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus to be the way to you to being one in Christ, to escaping our brokenness. God, this, this morning I pray that you would call to mind our brokenness, not so that we would feel guilt and shame, but so that we could find you there and that you would rescue us out of the middle of that. God, I ask and pray that you would help us to hear your voice telling us that you love us, as you've rescued us, that you make us right and that you've made a way for us to be with you forever give us faith help us to not be slaves to fear any longer we pray in jesus name amen